Well, good morning. Uh, grab your Bible, turn to Genesis 15. While you're turning there, I'm going to tell you a little bit about my childhood. If you, How many of you have been a child? Everybody? <laughs> Hopefully we can uh, identify with one another in this. I remember being a kid and my parents tucking me in at night, yeah, which is just a real blessing. And my dad tucking me in and, uh, and then he would get up and you know, go to the, turn the light off and, and leave. And I would say, hey, dad. <laughs> And uh, he'd say, yeah, bud. And I would have some kind of question that was just really burning on my mind. Have you ever experienced that? Where it's like, it's bedtime, it's time to turn off the lights, but the kids always have something else, right? And, uh, and sometimes it was just a burning question. Sometimes it was something I was afraid of. Now, sometimes it was waking up and going to get my parents and saying, can you, can you come help me? Can you come check things out? I heard a noise. Uh, I'm scared. Uh, there's something in my room. There's something on my bed. And what does a good parent do? A good parent comforts their children, right? They find themselves uh, wanting to stick around for a little bit longer, even though it's like way past bedtime and it's time to go to sleep, okay? And uh, they check the closet. They look under the bed. They do all the things. That's what a good parent does. They listen to the questions. So as the kid falls asleep, they've got to make a choice, though is when the lights go out and the parent leaves the room and they have said everything's going to be okay, the kid then has to close his eyes and go to sleep. They got to trust the parent. The parent was right. They got to be able to depend on someone else to protect them, to care for them, to come through for them if needed, right? There's an element of faith there. This is what Genesis chapter 15 is about. I don't know what your childhood was like. I don't know what your parents were like. But what I can tell you is regardless of what your parents were like, there is no father like God. God is the best father. And he meets Abram, who's one of the fathers of our faith, in a moment where Abram needs him to be a father to him, to comfort him, to answer his questions, and to come through for him. So we're going to see how that happens in Genesis chapter 15. It's the story of Abraham wondering and God answering the question, can God be trusted? Can God be trusted? So let's look at Genesis 15. I'm going to break this chapter into two scenes, sort of like a play, scene one, scene two. Both share the exact same elements. I'm going to show you that on the screen here in just a little while. But as we read, we're going to start with scene one, which is just verses one through five. And so if you've got your Bible open or your phone open, Genesis 15, look at it with me. Scene one, after these events, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Do not be afraid, Abram. I am your shield. Your reward will be very great. But Abram said, Lord God, what can you give me since I'm childless? The heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. Abram continued, look, you've given me no offspring, so a slave born in my house will be my heir. Now the word of the Lord came to him. This one will not be your heir. Instead, one who comes from your own body will be your heir. He took him outside. He said, look at the sky. 
count the stars if you're able to count them. And then he said to him, your offspring will be that numerous. It's a scene one. There's three elements to scene one. It starts with a comfort from God and then a question from Abram and then a, a, a confirmation from God, Some, a response of love and kindness to Abram's question. And in that confirmation is not everything you would necessarily expect. We'll get into that in a minute. But let's look at first the comfort. It starts in verse 1 saying, after these things. After what things? Well, if you've been tracking with us, you know. But if you haven't been, here's just sort of a recap. Having been rescued from Egypt and the sin that led him there, uh, chapter 12, Genesis, Abram returned to the land of promise and to a life of worshiping God in chapter 13, only to be called into a sort of civil war to protect the land that God had promised to him and also to rescue his nephew Lot, by the way. And by God's power, Abram gained an impossible victory in chapter 14 and was given a blessing by a king, the king of Salem, the king of peace, Melchizedek, a blessing who, who's a king who also worshiped God. But then next to that, was he was also given a temptation, a temptation of personal wealth by the king of Sodom, which represents sinfulness. He was able, by God's grace, to reject the, the promise of wealth from the king of Sodom, to receive the blessing from the king of Melchizedek. Uh, and that's, this is a great moment in Abraham's story. Everything appears like things are back on track. Everything is good on the outside. But God saw that not all was well with Abram on the inside. Does that resonate with you, maybe? That things on the outside look steady, to people around you, but what's happening on the inside feels quite a bit shaky. Maybe you've experienced something like that. This is where Abram was. And so it says in verse one, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. God takes the initiative here. God sees what's really going on in Abram. He steps into the bedroom, so to speak. Abram, Abram, I'm here. Abram, don't be afraid. Abram, I'm your shield. Abram, I'm your reward. So God takes the initiative by coming to Abram in a vision. And by the way, you are hearing the word of God today because God took the initiative. Because God came to you. He's come to you through the Bible, the revealed word of God. This is just as much a miracle that we can open and read God's word as it was for Abram to have God come to him in a vision to speak his word to him. So when we open the Bible together, we remember this is not just us doing something that we are traditionally used to or that we ought to do. We are doing something that is holy and reverent and where it's a miracle because God has come to us to reveal himself to us. So as we open the Bible, we ought to hear in the same way that Abram is hearing God's word to us. So we ought to listen to his voice in this holy moment, right? The word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. What does he say? He says, don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. Be afraid of what? Well, chapter 14, Abram kind of put himself out there a little bit. I mean, 
He gathered up 318 men from uh, his own household who were trained in battle. They went off into the valley uh, and ended up chasing the kings of the north who had come to oppress the kings of the south, chased him all the way back out of the promised land. And then the kings of the south, represented by the king of Sodom, says, hey, by the way, Abram, thanks for getting all of our stuff back and running those enemy kings out. I'll make you a deal. Uh, if you just give me the people, I'll give you all the possessions. You can be wealthy. It's the end of chapter 14, but Abram is able by God's grace to reject that. Uh, you know, he was kind of a, a terrible offer really. And Abram knew that. And so he was able to say, no, thank you. In fact, you can have all the possessions. That's not what I'm about because God is my true and best possession. And but that's all because God is the true and best possessor of all things, right? This is where he's saying, don't be afraid. I'm your shield. I mean, Abram's probably afraid that, number one, he's got some new enemies. These kings of the north aren't gone forever. King of Sodom and other kings around the promised land now see Abram as a force to be reckoned with. And so they will not go lightly or go easily away. So there's this challenge that Abram's facing is now God's promised this land to me, but here I am among these enemies and now new enemies. Now there's maybe a target on my back. There may be something to be afraid of. Maybe he was afraid also of the choice he made to reject the possessions offered by Sodom, the king of Sodom. I wonder if he looked at his bank account, so to speak, and said, where's my next meal coming from? I could have had all this stuff. Everything appeared like, like I, I regained the spoils of war from the kings of the south, and then I gave it all back. It was rightfully mine, but I let them all have it. I returned it to its rightful owners. Did I make the right choice? And the answer is, yeah, he did. God says, I am your shield. He says, you didn't defeat these enemies on your own, Abram. You have nothing to be afraid of. I delivered them over to you. In fact, he says, I'm your shield. It's the Hebrew word magin, magin. And then if you look back in chapter 14, verse 20, we see that Melchizedek echoes this reality that the Lord handed them over. That word handed is the Hebrew word migan, magin, migan. Right? And so God is maybe using a little wordplay here to help Abram remember, I am your shield. I'm the one who delivered these enemies and handed them over to you. I will take care of you. It doesn't matter what enemy comes against you. You got me. This is good, good news. And then he says even further, I am your reward. I mean, the spoils of war may have brought wealth for a moment, but the choice of faith was the right one. Like true blessing isn't found in what you can possess. We saw this last week, but in knowing the true king who possesses all of creation, that's where true blessing is found. To put this in modern day terms, true blessing is not what we see on social media as like hashtag blessed, right? Where I just got like all the new cars and fancy houses and new clothes and I'm like the hip designer, everything, hashtag blessed, right? That's not true blessing. That's a false sense of blessing, True blessing, as Abram has learned, is found in right relationship to God. That's it. Right relationship to God. That's where true blessing is found. Don't be afraid, Abram. I'm your shield. I am your reward. This is God the Father saying, hey, Abram, sleep tight, bud. 
It's all going to be good. You can trust me. But Abram's mind's still racing. So he asks God a question. He's got this sense of comfort. He asks God a question. The question is in verse 2 and 3. Look at it again. Verse 2 and 3. Abram said, Lord God, what can you give me since I'm childless? And the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. And then he stops. Well, essentially, what Abram is saying is, hey, God, when you say reward, you mean the kind of thing you said back in chapter 12, right? When you gave me this big promise about becoming a great name and a great nation and having this land and being a blessing to the world and that my descendants would inherit this promised land. He said, God, you're talking about that, right? Uh, when you say that you're my reward uh, and that uh, you know, you'll take care of me and you're my shield. All the, but the problem is, that God all depends on me having a child, but yet here I still am married to Sarai who is barren and we have no children. I thought maybe Lot, my nephew, could fulfill that role, but you made it clear to me in chapter 13 that that's not the plan, that I should let Lot go off on his own. Well, guess what, God? I don't know if you've noticed, but the things you promised to me don't seem to be happening. Abram's struggling. Because his immediate circumstances look nothing like the life God has promised him. And this something interesting happens after verse 2. I, I don't know if you noticed, but verse 2 starts with Abram said. Verse 3 starts with Abram continued. Why? <laughs> There's got to be a reason, right? I mean, in a conversation, you would say Abram said, and then God said, and then Abram continued. Except what happens between verse 2 and verse 3? God doesn't say anything. And this is a way in the Hebrew text for us to be able to see that there was a pause. Verse 2, God, uh, what can you give me? I mean, uh, I'm childless. The heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus, which in that day was typical for a person to choose a slave of theirs to become the inheritance, the inheritor, inheritor of their estate if they had no children of their own. That was kind of a normal thing. And so Abram's going, okay, God, I don't have a child yet, so this is the next best thing. Are you sure this is where we're going to go? And you know what God does? Nothing. He says nothing. And there's a gap. As a kid, I remember asking my dad the question when he left, and you, you ask so many questions. At some point, they just kind of like keep walking, <laughs> and the kid's still talking, and the light goes off, and the door closes. I imagine this is what God is doing after verse 2. Abram's like, God, yeah, it's great. Uh, thank you for the comfort. Thank you for the good night wish, the I'm your shield, I'm, I'm your reward. I, I, this is all excellent. I don't know if you noticed. God, how, how does this work out? And he keeps on asking and God says nothing for a time. Verse three says, Abram continued. So after this time gap, we don't know how long Abram waited. Our natural propensity is to interpret God's silence as God's absence. 
or God's indifference. But what we ought to learn here from this text is that God's silence doesn't mean he stopped working. God's silence doesn't mean he disengaged. God's silence doesn't mean he didn't care or want to lead Abram in the promise. God's silence indicates his sovereignty. God's silence indicates, I got this, Abram. You don't have to know all the details. You don't have to know how every little thing is going to work out. Uh, It's going to be okay. I'll see you in the morning. (laughs) But Abram continues. This is where we are too. We don't hear directly from God what we want to hear. We assume the worst. So it's what Abram says. He says in verse 3, look, God, you're not answering me, so let me tell you what's about to happen. And this is the answer God gives to Abram in verse 4 and 5. God finally responds with a confirmation. God responds with a confirmation. So Abram's really digging in here. He's like, look, I'm not going to let up. I got to know what's going on here. God, I see you're silent. You're not giving me an answer right now. So I'm just going to dig in further. This is exactly how this is going to go. My slave Eleazar is going to become the heir of my household. The Everything you've promised to me is going to be given into the hands of an Egyptian, uh, right? And he came from Egypt in chapter 12. So is this God really what you want? Finally, God steps in with a confirmation in verse four. And five. And so here's what he says, verse four and five. The word of the Lord came to him. This one will not be your heir. Instead, one who comes from your own body will be your heir. Very specific. He took him outside and said, look at the sky. Count the stars if you're able to count them. And then he said, your offspring will be that numerous. Don't miss the grace of God in this, by the way. God had no obligation to respond to Abram. But in his kindness, God clarified his amazing promise to Abram. Even when Abram was impatient, even when Abram doubted, God responded to him in kindness. I wonder if maybe you're there too, where God might have been silent and you maybe have gone astray because of God's silence, not recognizing God's sovereignty. Can I just remind you that there's grace for you. God will receive your questions. God may be even answering your questions, but there is, regardless of your circumstance, grace from God for you, wherever you are in relationship to him. You can find grace from him. God is kind. You've seen the courtroom drama shows uh, on TV. Lawyers always kind of roll their eyes because <laughs> this is not really how it works in a courtroom. It's a lot more boring, but the, the TV shows, the, you know, they get all dramatized and a lawyer stands up during an argument and he goes, objection. And then the judge has a chance to say, What? overruled or sustained, right? Okay, one of the two. Uh, I've never seen this happen in real life, but this is on TV how it goes. Objection. And then one of the things I've heard is they've said circumstantial evidence. I don't know what that means either, but on TV they say it like they know what it means. Except that this is exactly what Abram's doing. He's saying, God, I hear your promise, but objection, look at my circumstances. How can that be true if this is true? And then God says, overruled, overruled. This is the phrase, the phrasing in verse four. It says, now the word of the Lord came to Abram. There's, a, there's an intensity here that Abram had kind of pushed it too far. And then God steps in and says, okay, you've called me out here. Let me just tell you who's right. 
I'm going to show you, Abram. I'm going to confirm my promise to you. I'm going to make sure you know exactly who's in charge here. Your objection is overruled. Now, let me show you why. So God overrules Abram's objection. He, he brings him the confirmation. There's two parts of the confirmation in verse four and five that you gotta be aware of because when you see a confirmation of a promise, immediately you might as well think, man, things are gonna be great for Abram from here on. But you know what's embedded here is these two elements. There's first a suffering a continued suffering even. We know Abram and Sarai have not been able to have children. And so in verse four, this is what God says. This one, this Eleazar, the slave, this won't be your heir. Instead, one who comes from your own body will be your heir. It sounds like great news to us, but to Abram, who he and his wife have yet to be able to have children, feels like a little bit of a blow. <sighs> okay, I guess we'll keep trying right? Uh, God says his promise will be fulfilled, but that doesn't always mean that it won't be without struggle. And as you know, many people know, the desire to have children, right, is rarely an easy journey. So now Abram and Sarai know, like, if we're going to really live into the promise of God, that it means not everything's going to go well, and I can't make a judgment about God based on my circumstances anymore. So this is where Abram is. And God says to Abram, let's go outside. I want to show you something. And he shows him a symbol of his sovereignty. He says to Abram, your perspective is too small. Yeah, you are aware of your circumstances, Abram, but that's all you're aware of. Now, let me show you what I'm aware of and what I'm responsible for. To prove his power, to fulfill his promise, God takes Abram outside to show him the stars. Look at the stars, Abram. Don't you remember Genesis chapter 1? God said that uh, there would be a, an expanse, and in that expanse there will be these lights among these stars that God placed in the sky. I mean, Abram, you're looking at your life here, and yes, you have a struggle here, but I'm telling you that your offspring will be as numerous as the stars, which, by the way, I created. And by the way, I'm in charge of. By the way, I keep them burning. By the way, I'm even going to use these stars to prove this to future generations, my promise to you. Do you remember this? If you fast forward 42 generations after Abram from this moment, we find ourselves in the gospel of Matthew in the New Testament, uh, describing Matthew, the gospel, describing the birth of a man we know as Jesus, Jesus Christ. Do you remember what happens in Matthew chapter two, verse nine? He's a descendant of Abram as Matthew chapter one tells us. But in chapter two, verse nine, we learn about these wise men from the East who are coming to see Jesus. And it says, after hearing the king, they went on their way and there it was, the star they had seen at its rising. And it led them until it came and stopped above the place where the child was. And when they saw the star, they were overwhelmed with joy. Entering the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, which, by the way, another mother who should not have been able to have a child. And falling to their knees, they worshiped. Abram, your perspective is too small. Not only am I over all these stars, and I promise you, Abram, your descendants will be as numerous as the stars, but there will be one descendant, Abram, who, yes, will make you a blessing to the whole world. Yes, will make your name great. 
Abram, there's so much more at stake here than just your immediate circumstance. Abram, I can be trusted, is what God is saying to Abram. So what do we do? How do we learn from scene one? Can we trust God? Yeah, God God takes us outside in a way. God says, hey, your perspective is too small. If you're wondering how can God be trusted, it looks like everything around us is bad. I'm watching the news, things are going wrong. I'm looking at my own life. My circumstances don't look great. The reminder of Genesis 15 is, look, despite all that, God's up to something bigger. God is over it all. God is in control. God can be trusted. And so practically, two things is number one, just be patient. Just take a deep breath. Go, yeah, things are not good for me right now, but God's in control. And if you need to, like, go outside at night. Do exactly what Abram did as God led him outside. Look at the stars. Try to count them. And when you get tired of counting, you remember God is in control. God's got it. I heard someone say this last week, you can never think God is bigger than he is. Think about that for a second. You can never think God is bigger than he is. So as big as you can imagine him, as grand and impressive and over and sovereign, every, every ounce of your energy could be given to thinking about how, God, how big God is and you will never get there. God is bigger than you can ever think or imagine. That's scene one. Scene two, verse seven through 21. Uh, let's just read this piece by piece, okay? Let's start uh, with verse seven. We saw at uh, the beginning of scene one, there was an example of God comforting Abram. This is exactly how we start in scene two. It says in verse seven, he also said to him, I am the Lord who brought you from Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to possess. Yes, Abram, I know you're, you're worried about your child, but I got that covered. And before Abram asks anything else, God says, oh, and by the way, remember the other part of that promise that was really huge in chapter 12? I got that too. Because I'm the God who brought you out of the land that you were with your father and his household from Ur of the Chaldeans. You remember you traversed the whole area, the Mesopotamian region from the Euphrates all the way up and then all the way down through the promised land. Remember that, Abram? I'm the God who brought you. I'm the God who sustained you. I'm the God who took care of you. And by the way, I'm going to keep that promise, right? This is what God is saying. So there's a comfort here. Uh, This is something that God intends to do and to fulfill. Yet Abram responds again with a question. Verse eight, but he said, Lord God, how can I know I will possess it? How can I know? How can I know? This is a question that we have all the time. Abram asks it because he's going, look, I got a lot of things I'm facing here. I got a lot of enemies coming after me now. I got a lot of people to take care of. I don't know, you know, when is this all going to happen? How's it going to work out? How can I know? Sometimes people ask the same thing about salvation. How can you know? How can you know that you are saved? How can you know that God 
We'll let you into heaven, so to speak. How can you be sure? Let me just point you to 1 John chapter 5 as just a slight aside here. If you're asking that question, how can you know? 1 John chapter 5, verse 13, uh, John, the apostle of Jesus, says this, I've written these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God so that you may know you have eternal life. So how do you know? You believe. That's it. And you can be confident. So again, God gives Abram, from his question, a confirmation. The comfort, verse 7, the question, verse 8, now the confirmation. The confirmation shows up in verse 18 through 20, uh, really, which is God's fulfillment of his promise, where he says, On the day the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying, I give this land to your offspring from the brook of Egypt to the great river, the Euphrates River, the land of the Kenites, the Kenizzites, the Kadmonites, the Hethites, the Perizzites, Rephaim, Amorites, Canaanites, Girgashites, and Jebusites. And you're going, what was that? This is what it is. God is saying from chapters 12 and 13, he showed Abram the land as he traversed it from north to south, from east to west. Now God is listing both the boundaries and the occupants of the land that will ultimately have to yield to God's promise. But again, how will it happen? How will this promise be confirmed? Well, not the easy way. Again, we see the same two elements of confirmation, the the struggle, the suffering, and the symbol. Here's the struggle. The struggle happens in verse 13. The Lord said to Abram, know this for certain, Your offspring will be resident aliens for 400 years in a land that does not belong to them, and they will be enslaved and oppressed. However, I will judge the nation they serve, and afterward they will go out with many possessions. But you will go to your fathers in peace and be buried at a good old age. And in the fourth generation, they'll return here, for the iniquity of the Amorites has not yet reached its full measure. God is saying, listen, Abram, this story is much bigger than you. In fact, your descendants who have promised this land, even they will be disobedient. Uh, Even they will reject me and my promise and they'll act with faithlessness. Yet I will still even then fulfill my promise even after 400 years of slavery. But Abram, just like counting the stars, you don't have to understand everything. Just simply trust that God's in control. And then to prove this to Abram, he gives him yet another symbol, a symbol of his sovereignty. Look in verse 9, what happens after Abram's question. Verse 9, he said to him, Bring me a three-year-old cow, a three-year-old female goat, a three-year-old ram, a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. Starting to sound like a Christmas song there, okay? But uh, bring me all these things. So he brought all these to him. Cut them in half? Laid the pieces opposite each other. He didn't cut the birds in half. Let me just pause there and say, probably it was because the birds are too small to cut in half. He just chopped their heads off. Because the important part of this was the blood, okay? Birds of prey came down on the carcasses, but Abram drove them away. As the sun was setting, a deep sleep came over Abram. Suddenly a great terror and darkness descended on him. This is what's happening in verse 9 through 12. Now skip down to verse 17 after the warning of the 400 years of slavery. Verse 17 says, When the sun had set and it was dark, a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch appeared and passed between the divided animals. 
And on that day, the Lord made a covenant. This is the symbol, the sign of God's sovereignty that he is choosing a relationship to Abram and his descendants to fulfill his promise. You've heard the word covenant. This puts what the word covenant means on display. It gives us a word picture for this idea. In fact, that word covenant literally means to cut. This is exactly what Abram did. He takes these animals, he cuts them in half, lays them opposite each other so that the blood is running down the middle. And it's, it's symbolic of a relationship that is based on a sacred and solemn vow or a promise that can never be broken. And the reason there's animals cut and blood running down is that it's a covenant in blood, meaning whoever breaks this promise Let it happen to them what just happened to these animals. This is what's happening. So Abram's setting this up. He knows what's going on. In fact, if you go back to chapter 14, he already has a covenant with his neighbors, Mamre and the brothers, right? They already had a covenant together. This is probably some of the same ritual act that they did together to form this bond, which ended up making them all go together to fight the kings of the north. Abram knew what a covenant was. This was a common ancient practice. So he gets the animals. He lays them out opposite one another. The blood is running down the middle. He understands what's happening, which is supposed to be the lesser of the person in the covenant goes through first. But Abram doesn't do anything. He waits. Long enough, too, where the birds start circling. The vultures are going, hey, there's some good stuff down there. I'm going to try to go after that. Abram's literally fighting away vultures, birds of prey, who are trying to get at these carcasses all day, wearing himself out when all he has to do is walk through, make this covenant with God. Why is he not doing it? One explanation is that he's terrified. He's terrified to make a covenant with God because he wasn't confident in his own ability to keep it. And if Abram walked through, knowing he would eventually fail, that meant God would have to kill him. So he waits, not knowing what to do. God puts Abram to sleep. Similar, by the way, to how he put Adam to sleep uh, in chapter 2, when he made Eve out of Adam. It's a, a way that Genesis tells us that this is only the work of God, that God's in control, that humans are so um, unable to do anything. It's as if they're just totally asleep. You're totally unconscious to the world, right? This is, you have no ability to provide for this relationship. And so as Abram is asleep, God reveals first the hard providence of slavery, that yes, there's a struggle which you'll have to endure, the direct result of his and his descendants' inability to be faithful to this covenant. But then in verse 17, this incredible thing happens. Abram sees a smoking pot and a flaming torch pass through the carcasses. Now think about the Israelites who were hearing Genesis for the first time. In the wilderness, having escaped from slavery in Egypt for 400 years, This is sounding very familiar familiar to them. Wandering in the wilderness, do you remember what guided the Israelites in the wilderness? A pillar of cloud by day, a pillar of fire by night, the smoking pot, the cloud, the fire torch by night, right? This is something that to these first hearers of Genesis, they would have gone, this is God. And Abram knew this is 
God, he sees them pass through the carcass. In other words, God takes the lead and goes through the covenant ritual first and only. God takes on both sides of the covenant with Abram. What could this mean? Could it mean that God knew Abram could not keep his end of the covenant? Could it mean that God knew that Abram and all those after him would definitely fail, but that God intends to take the punishment for Abram's failure upon himself? Could it mean that God himself was planning to pay the penalty for Abram's sin by shedding his own blood just as the animals had their blood shed before the covenant? Because only God can be completely faithful to this kind of covenant. Only God would be a worthy sacrifice to make a relationship with sinful humanity possible. An amazing thing happens in Genesis 15. And the rest of the story of our Bible is built on this idea that God longs for a covenant relationship with people to the extent that while he is the only one who is able to be a worthy sacrifice for the forgiveness of sin and the restoration of relationship between a sinful human and a holy God, knowing he's the only one who can take on that punishment, sends his very son, Jesus Christ, God himself, to be fully God and fully man, to live a perfect life on this earth, 33 years, and then he is killed by people for crimes he did not commit. He becomes on the cross the sacrificial lamb, the sacrificial animal to say, I'm paying the penalty for the sins of mankind that we know, God knows man cannot fulfill his end of the covenant. He will never be perfect. He'll never be to enter into on his own a relationship with a holy God. So God says, I myself will take that punishment on me. I will shed my own blood so that I can know men for eternity so that I can dwell with mankind forever that I can restore the blessing of creation to recreation that he can complete the circle that what God intended at the very beginning he can make possible again at the end through shedding his own blood could it be that this is the story the Bible is telling that because God went through the covenant himself with Abram, you and I can now enjoy eternal fellowship with God in an unbreakable covenant because God himself took it on. That's scene two. Two scenes, comfort, question, and a confirmation. Now, these two scenes are vivid depictions to Abram, which answered the question, can God be trusted? That's where we started, right? Now we learned some good theology in here, but the question really is, can God be trusted? Two things I just would say in response to this. Number one is regardless of your circumstances, God is sovereign. Just look at the stars. It's a reminder. Regardless of your circumstances, God is sovereign. Regardless of your suffering even, the hard providences of life. God took the greatest suffering upon himself 
to guarantee your salvation. Whatever circumstances behind you, whatever circumstance or suffering might be in front of you, the answer is yes, God can be trusted. So don't look to your circumstance to decide whether or not you can be confident in God. Notice God's revelation to Abram was not in the form of an easy life for him or his descendants. It wasn't in the form of everything to be perfect. We know Abram failed. Even in the next chapter, Abram misconstrues this promise that God will give him a a descendant through him. And he goes, yeah, well, I guess it's it's happening through me, but not through my wife, so I'll choose another woman. And we know that was outside of God's plan. We'll get there next week, okay? Abram's not perfect, but God is dependable. God will fulfill his promise. This is the blessing of God's favor, And it's far more valuable than what we might see as favorable circumstances in our life. No one knew this better than Jesus, who gave himself over even to death because he knew the resurrection power of God. The resurrection is the greatest evidence we have of God's faithfulness. Abram didn't have that exact evidence, but he saw God's sovereignty in the stars and he saw God take the suffering that he deserved through the symbol of the covenant to prove his sovereignty over all. And now we can look back and see God embodying that through Jesus Christ, taking on the suffering for sin and dying to sin and then being miraculously raised from the dead on the third day, something that nobody has ever been able to disprove or will be able to disprove because it's real. We've got to reckon with that. The resurrection is real. And because the resurrection is real, it also becomes promised to us to experience along with Jesus that you and I, yes, though we will die through faith in Christ, we will be resurrected. And that's our future reality. That's where we are also heading. So what's our response? Okay, I, I don't know if you noticed, I skipped a verse. Anybody notice that? You're starting to wonder about me, weren't you? Our response is the same as Abram's. Scene one and scene two are sewn together in chapter 15 by verse six. This is the center of the chapter, right? It's not the actual center, but it's the central point of the chapter. Chapter 15, verse six says this. Abram believed the Lord and he credited it it to him as righteousness. Some have said this is the John 3.16 of the Old Testament. You know John 3.16, that God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him would not perish, have eternal death, but instead have eternal life. This is the good news of Jesus Christ. So it's been said that this is the John 3.16 of the Old Testament. Abram believed the Lord and it was credited to him as righteousness. Belief, faith. This is the first time the word for faith shows up in the Old Testament. Now we've been talking about faith every week, right? We've seen it in principle from the very beginning, but here it is for the first time explicitly faith, as we have defined before, choosing to live in God's promise regardless of your circumstance, right? But the literal definition of the word believe here in verse six is to say it's proved reliable, that it's firm and dependable. So what's happening here? God in these circumstances is coming to Abram, asking him to take a hard look at his life. And what did he see? For one, he saw he already failed. 
Chapter 12, he failed miserably. Chapter 13, even when he succeeded, in chapter 13 and 14, even when he succeeded, he was overcome with fear. Then number three, there's things out of his control, like the ability to have a child on his own schedule. These are excruciatingly painful things to go through. And then finally, even when that day comes that he might have a child, God's remember the suffering of his descendants, There are harder days ahead, potentially. This is hard to wrap Abram's mind around, but the point of all of it is to say, Abram, you can't depend on yourself. As hard as you may try, depending on yourself is going to fail you. And Abram's response to this covenant renewal was trust, faith, to say that God is the only thing reliable in this life. God is the only thing that's firm and dependable. And he chooses trust. And that is why he credited it to him as righteousness. That word credit is a accounting terms, balancing the books, meaning that Abram had sinned. He was in the negative. And he could have done as much as he possibly could to make things right, return to the promised land. Didn't really move. Uh, okay, build the altar, go back to the altar, worship God more. Count didn't really budge, right? But then the moment Abram said, I trust God as the only dependable thing in this life, boom, account credited as righteousness so that he could stand before God without fear. That's what righteousness is. It's right standing with God. And Abram believed and it was credited to him as righteousness. I wanna invite Haley and the worship team to come as we close with a song today, I just got to ask you, have you believed? Believed in what? Have you believed in Jesus Christ, God himself, who gave himself as a sacrificial offering to pay for your failure, to pay for your sin? That is how you get to stand before God one day with confidence, knowing you have eternal life. That is how you live every moment of this life with confidence, knowing you are living for a greater kingdom and experiencing God's kingdom here on earth is by faith in Jesus Christ. That's it. So all the lessons about God's sovereignty that God can be trusted has to lead you to this point where you say, I trust God. I trust Jesus who paid the penalty for my sin so that I can now have a relationship with God for eternity. I'm not gonna be perfect, I get it, but God paid for my sin and I've got confidence in that. If that's your response today, we wanna help you take that response, make that response, to put your faith in Jesus, to change your life forever from this day forward. The old you to, to go away and for there to be a new you that's alive in God from this day forward. So if that's you, I wanna lead you to take that step. Others of you may have another step to take. While we sing, you have a chance to take those steps to go ahead and respond to God. Let me just say a brief prayer and then we'll stand together. The band will be singing. But if you need a response to make a response that needs some help, like you want some prayer or you want somebody to help you just walk you through what's next, we wanna help you. So right at the back, uh, around the the stools back there, there'll be a couple people who want to help you. During the song, you can find us. We'd love to help you take your next step. Let's pray.
God, I am amazed by your kindness to Abram. In his questioning, you comforted and you confirmed that though his circumstances may not be awesome, you would come through for your promise. And I see that clearly in the scripture now, that Jesus makes it possible for us to be in relationship with you. And that if we know that, we have a joy and a confidence that supersedes all of our circumstances. Thank you, God, for the picture you painted for us in Genesis 15 and for the call to faith as the only way to be made right with you. God, may we walk out of here today having heard your voice with a renewed confidence in you and a renewed fervor to live for you, knowing that we are nothing without you. Help us as we respond. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.